Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to another Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club uh, live, live for the second time. Um, so a bit like Jesus, I guess, something like that. Um, today, uh, just a little bit of news before we get started. Uh, you had the UK regional elections, which we discussed very briefly, uh, or local elections, which we discussed very briefly in uh, three articles, which is going to come out on Tuesday. But anyway, um, Peter Mandelson says that uh, Labour, Peter Mandelson, of course, uh, kind of chief new Labour uh, apparatchik uh, or major figure really in, in, in labor behind the scenes, in new labor behind the scenes, um, declared today that we need to uh, rekindle or, or discover the spirit of Brexit, appropriate the spirit of Brexit. This was the guy, of course, who led, who led the uh, People's Vote campaign to have a second referendum. Um, so that's maybe just a little bit of, little tidbit of news to, to get us started. But I'll hand over to Phil now, who's, uh, who's going to be running this one. Thanks, Alex. So just to um, remind everyone who attended last time and also for anybody, any of our new listeners, this is um, the second of our live stream events, um, specifically for patrons, because it's um, a, a reading club event. And in this, we talk about um, a pre-selected piece of reading, which we've identified as something that we think is and hope will be of in wide interest. And for this kind of series of live stream events, this is the second one we've done of the live stream event. Um, it is the second part of a series of essays um, undertaken by the leading new left, um, well, aging new left historian, but still very prestigious um, um, scholar and Marxist historian, Perry Anderson. Um, published in the London Review of Books. And the first one was The European Coup. The second one, which we're discussing today, is Ever Closer Union. Um, and as Alex has already mentioned, please do feed us your questions um, through, the, through the channels available. Okay, so um, we'll get started by talking, about, talking a bit about it between the three of us, um, and uh, then we'll turn over to um, uh, talking through the questions, whichever questions come through. So uh, generally, I think, I mean, for me, this piece was kind of typical Andersonian fare, very much in his kind of um, high Andersonian style, just to say it's some kind of meandering review essay of um, looking over what he identifies as heterodox opinion and scholarship on the European Union, um, as well as kind of interspersed with plenty of telling um, illustrative historical an anecdotes. And... Anderson begins, I suppose, he notes by the fact that the focus of um, scholarly insight in discussing the European Union, its centre of gravity has shifted away from where it used to be in the US Academy to um, becoming more um, dominated once again by European scholars. A new generation of European-based scholars, both in the UK, but also centre of gravity has shifted Europe. away. And before we get into it, I thought it might be quickly, it might be useful to very briefly contrast the insurgent scholarship with the orthodoxy. And luckily we have a representative of orthodoxy here among the three of us because Alex has, um, used to be at the LSE um, and he can tell us perhaps a little bit about studying Euro studies because I think your degree was in Euro studies. You're Euro trash yourself, you know, so Euro trash studying Euro studies at the LSE, the core of liberal cosmopolitan academia. So tell us, how suppressed is the heterodox story of Euro studies? How is it buried in the curriculum when you were a student? I mean, I'm not sure how to go about that. I mean, actually, one one quick thing before I even answer that. I think it's unfair to call this meandering because I think it was sharper and to the point, actually, and more so than the first one, where in the first one you're learning about 
Luke van Middelaar, the, the supposed organic intellectual of the EU, and then you're hearing about who his, um, you know, kind of intellectual um, father was, you know, and, and uh, so I think this one's a little bit more to the point, you know, you learn about the European Court of Justice, and then he kind of, you know, gets really critical about what the, the EU is. Um, as yeah, to me, just, sorry, just, yeah, to, just to jump in, just to, you allowed a bit of meandering this at 30p a word, which apparently is what LRB um, pays. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to cut in some slack in these two 15,000 word essays because, yeah, the meanderings, there is a reason for it. You have to respect That's the grift. Fair, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's fair what you say, Alex. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's probably not as, uh, it's not quite as meandering as the first one. That's true. Um, but as, yeah, as to me, um, my favorite topic, let me talk about me. Um, no, but yeah, I, I mean, at LSE, I mean, I didn't study European studies. I studied international relations there. Um, I then studied European studies at King's, which was actually a far more radical right. department because there's lots of Marxists, including Alex Klinikos there, Stati <laughs> Kovalakis, um, who present a much more critical view. Um, but in, at the, at, at, at the LSE, I didn't really pay it much attention when Kubala, the, was Kubalakis in the, he was he in the breakaway faction of Syriza? The yeah, Brexit exactly. Faction? He's in the radical left faction of Syriza. Um, so, you know, good people. Um, and, uh, well, yeah, the Kalinikos is very sharp. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked. Um, we, at, at the LSE, I kind of ignored all the stuff on the EU, because or you know didn't did the kind of basic reading because it was just really boring and I think most people felt that until the until the euro crisis really no one really paid attention to the EU and almost you know academics and journalists who've been plodding away plodding away suddenly were thrust into the limelight uh, at the time of the euro crisis and probably felt like they were vindicated and paid off for actually having dedicated their careers to studying this really boring construction which no one really cared about was seen as not political and um, Anderson uses a word which I don't even remember in the text to refer to something a cl something from classical antiquity to refer to something which is neither moral nor immoral or something it's just kind of there um, and that's kind of very much what it was and, and debates about the EU at least my academic experience of it was about you know these debates about whether the EU is an intergovernmental construction or whether the kind of functionalist accounts were more true you know basically whether the EU is just a something where heads of governments come together and agree things a bit like all sorts of um, trade negotiations, for example, or that there's something more fundamental going on, that there's uh, cooperation over, you know, kind of functional grounds, whether, you know, how to make the railways combine with one another, communications and so on, um, you know, and re really what's at stake or whether indeed it's more uh, uh, really federal and or whether it might become federal. And it was just the sort of the, the kind of standoff between your, your you know, your favored flavor of uh, academic uh, analysis. And that was it. Yeah, I think what's so he makes the point that the it is not accidental that it's boring. I think I mean, this is um, he perhaps doesn't say it directly, but it certainly it comes across repeatedly, both in terms of the excruciating kind of technical character of all of the legislation and directives that are pumped out of Brussels and the various agencies of the European Union, their length, their intractability, their inaccessibility to ordinary voters. And that is also mirrored in the character of the academic theorizing and the scholarship around it, which also, at least up until recently, according to Anderson, was of the same kind of in, um, esoteric, dull kind of pedantic character because it had no real organic connection to public debate. So I think that's important. Yeah. And it's also important to stress, I suppose. I'm sorry, George, you go on. No, no, I think um, <clears throat> just my, you know, we're sharing our, our lived experience here of, of, um, of Euro studies. And so I, when I was teaching in, 
So you Sorry? became honorary Euro trash because you taught in Leiden, didn't you? <laughs> um, yeah, so it was the Leiden University College. So all the English speaking um, uh, students in in that that Dutch institution in this this was in The Hague. Um, yeah, and so I was, I taught I ended up teaching a, a, a subject called uh, Area Studies Europe, and um, it was kind of the last choice of the different area studies that all the students could do. But yeah, exactly as you said, I mean, I think the, at that point, so this was about 10 years ago, the, um, less than 10 years ago, the before Brexit, basically, the scholarship was very, very dry on the EU. It was a bit like, you know, why, why, why bother studying Europe? It's like, yeah, that's, that's, it's an area, but it's more interesting to do like Latin America or Africa or Southeast Asia or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and so I think that, you know, that definitely reflects my, my experience of trying to find some interesting readings. There was some really good stuff on the history of the concept of Europe. That was really like very interesting. Mm. Um, but today, like what the EU is um, like five years ago was not a really particularly interesting question. Yeah, I, mean, so I, I, I often I felt it, like I wanted to send you to the Hague, George, but little did I know you'd, you'd already been. I was, yeah, already been because for your crimes, got, got crimes out, against okay. humanity. Yeah, subject George to transnational cosmopolitan justice. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, I think, and this is the point that um, Anderson has made both here and elsewhere, is that the EU has kind of colonized academia. And it has kind of created its own hinterland of um, ideology, effectively supporting it through the institution of the Jean Monnet chairs, which are hundreds. I think the figure was 500 Jean Monnet chairs kind of scattered around various academic institutions within the European Union now. And so through funding these chairs, it's provided this kind of ideological infrastructure within the academy, not to mention, um, you know, loads of hundreds and hundreds of Erasmus students and master's students, thousands and thousands, in fact, of, um, of uh, Euro twinks and twinkets being pumped out by the academy to support the European Union. Um, yeah, anyway, so I was going to make a joke there about Alex, but he's too old and aged now for that joke, so I'll let it pass. Too so hairy, anyway, too bold. A, lot of yeah, the, <laughs> a lot of the discussion is, so a lot of the discussion is structured around a comparison with the US. And this has become increasingly, I mean, you know, it's been there for a while in discussions of European integration, but it is also becoming more prominent in public debate now, and particularly as a result of the debt crisis, how far the European debt crisis is going to spur unification in the same way that centralization and nationalization occurred in the early American Republic as a result of um, the debt crises of the individual states. And that spurred the kind of greater integration at the level of the union at the expense of the constituent states. Um, I don't I mean I don't particularly want to talk about the you know the history of the American Republic, but I did want to talk a bit about the how far it makes sense to compare what's happening in Europe now with um, the federal structures of the US state. Um, how is that I mean is you know is it useful? Is it legitimate? Um, and also he mentions the fact that people, even despite this comparison, people now talk in terms of European integration rather than in terms of European federalism. And I think that's also important. So I was wondering, anyway, I'd be, what do you guys make of the significance of that shift from from federalism to integration? Yeah, he picks this up quite early. He says the, you know, the shift happened in, you know, from the 50s onwards for political reasons. And you can kind of understand that integration is good. Who wants to be disintegrated? Um, 
you know that's the bad thing but you know i think it it's that kind of banality um that sort of seeming neutrality of the process that ever closer union i mean that's a a cultural a political a kind of economic um collection of processes whereas a federation or fed federalizing that's very clearly top down it implies something that's standing over and above the whatever it is that's that's federated so it's also explicitly political there whereas integration is such a kind of neutral term that could be interpreted in so many different ways whereas federalism is a political project yeah that um, yeah yeah and, and it's and it's also obviously partly part partly to to brand it differently from the us i mean obviously it's, it's kind of an obvious oh, point but yeah. you know this is not the united states of europe it's uh it's something which is more of a more of a uh, you know a, a union it used of, to be. Of i suppose the point is but it used to be for you know that was the vision of the original of the early kind of founding fathers and of much of the kind of inspiration and i think the fact that it's shifted away from that indicates how far it has um receded from the aspiration to um connect to the you know to have any kind of real political vision an explicit political vision for what Europe stands for in the future, and also to connect to any kind of popular um, aspiration on the part of ordinary citizens. They know they can't yeah. sell it, and so they shift away from federalism to talking in more kind of bland, generic terms of integration, which could be, you know, kind of, um, you know, banal technocratic integration, like Alex mentioned, you know, like free roaming or whatever, to political and economic integration. It's very ambiguous, and it gives... Euro elites plenty of discretion and flexibility with it, how to interpret it and take it forward and backward and sideways as they will. Yeah, yeah, integration has to be managed and federation has to be achieved or has yeah. to be struck. Yeah, Absolutely. sorry, Alex. And, and you know, and it, and it precisely coincides, as Perry Anderson points out, with the sh with a shift away from any notion of a kind of social Europe, which uh, Jacques Delors wanted, you know, around the time of the 80s and by the time of 1990, or certainly 92, the time by the time of the Maastricht Treaty, that uh, that notion of a social Europe where it might have more um, kind of um, responsibilities and commitments to its citizens um, also starts to to evaporate. So, you know, yeah, I think that's always... also part of it. And I think maybe he understates that a bit. I mean, in the sense, it was always sops, you know, like there was never anything really there. I don't think, or at least, I mean, that would be my take. It was always, there was never going to be more than kind of a few bones thrown to kind of poor rust belt regions and um, kind of provincial peripheries of the major states. But anyway, so much of the discussion, and I wanted to talk about this in a bit more detail, particularly because it connects to the point about the comparison with the US, because so much of the discussion in this piece by Anderson is connected to the European Court of Justice. And I mean, you know, I was kind of aware of this, but I've, I was also just astonished by it. Um, and this he takes from the French historian, or at least I think she's French. She got a PhD in France, Vera Fritz, um, where she talks through the early, the history of the early court and digs through the biography of its founding members and the kind of the way in which it established itself in relationship to the magistrates and the courts of the of the member states in the 50s and the 60s and it's astonishing i mean it's just like it's like picking up the experience of reading it is like picking up a rock and finding like a disgusting nest of cockroaches or you know worms or something so it's just fascists vichy collaborators senior members of the nazi party i mean it's like almost like a caricature of elitist reaction all um you know, like all in the secretive court. And it's, I think it's, and I think it must be deliberate in Anderson's part that it's almost comical the way he talks through the life story 
of some of these individual judges or talks about, you know, some of the cases they're involved in and then kind of goes back to talk a bit about their background. And yeah, again, yeah, that's another brown shirt, another member of the NSDAP, um, a Nazi Gauleiter in one case who was involved in uh, the um, occupation of Belgium, I think it was, or some SS collaborator. And I, the, I mean, what was so funny to me about this in particular was it reminded me of these um, airport thrillers about the EU that used to be able to buy in the 1990s that were written occasionally by these kind of crank Eurosceptic Tory MPs about how the European Union was actually the Fourth Reich. And then when you actually read about the history of the court, it kind of is uh, the European Court of Justice. It kind of is the Fourth Reich. Um, so anyway, um, I wondered... Um, what are the important points of difference? And I mean, I don't know if you guys wanted to pitch in on the on the Nazi. Well, well I mean, I just wanted to, to highlight William Rowe in the in the comments saying that um, you know one thing uh, he doesn't draw. Out, oh, sorry, that's a wrong comment. Yeah, to, to the joke now about sending uh, well sending George the Hague. Actually, probably many of the founding members of the European Court of Justice could have been sent to the Hague. <laughs> yeah. That's actually yeah, that's pretty good actually. Very true. Or indeed, oh, also, also one other one other thing which which we forgot to mention. I didn't realize this. We should have we should have realized this really um that the 9th of may is a european day so happy european day uh that's uh, t vera wishing us that in the comments and, and thank you i think we all Indeed. feel very european today and also victory yeah. day the so the day in which the soviet union declared victory over nazi germany because some german units surrendered later to the soviets than they did to the western allies so i guess two counterpoints to um to europe yeah so just to just to europe pick up on your, maybe, your yeah go on yeah, just pick up on your point about <clears throat> any comments on on the fact that there were so many Nazis in the ECJ. Um, yeah, just you know, two points. One, I think that's a bad thing. Personally, not a fan <laughs> of of Nazis. Secondly, it reminded me of the the the, the meme with with, with Homer um, fading back into the hedgerow, yeah. and it's like Nazi scientists fade into the hedgerow, then come back, and it's NASA. It's basically like like Nazi jurists fade into the hedgerow, come back. We, we need to ECJ. do that about the European Court of Justice, yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah, a freebie should, if anybody, anybody wants to um, <laughs> to memeify that, they, they can do. Um, but no, it's an interesting bit of historical kind of, um, I guess it, it shows the, the, the domination already at an early stage um, of the key institution of the EU by um, by by kind of that, people of that, that origin particularly some, some of the German. Deeper, I mean, so I suppose there's two deeper points, which is the um, the fact that Nazi the Nazi conquest of Europe was so important as a precursor to European unification. Um, and this is something that is often kind of treated as a dirty secret and something which is so controversial it can't be mentioned. Um, but it is just objectively true. The experience of collaboration between industrial and ruling elites who are frequently happy to be occupied by the Nazis, you know, the famous or notorious slogan of the French bourgeoisie, better Hitler than Bloom, better Hitler than the Jewish socialist um, French leader of the interwar period. So I think that's, you know, like this, that this history CJ consolidates that, but also that European institutions are a way of recycling figures from the national context. And in particular, in the case where you had so many people in the national context who needed to have their reputations laundered, that this particular European institution was so effective at that, um, not least because it could be done, um, you know, through um, in the form of a court. So I think both of those things are also aspects of this story of the Vichy collaborators, fascists and Nazis who seem to be just wriggling all around the European court in its early days. Anyway, so... Um, 
similarities, differences between the ECJ and the Supreme Court, um, either to George and Alex or to our listeners, if anybody wants to throw anything in? Well, I mean, it, I mean, actually, in, in fact, one of our, one of the listeners here, yeah, William Rowe, again, asking, um, wanted to draw out how the ECJ is different from the Supreme Court. And I think, I mean, one thing is that the the picture, I mean, I don't really know my jurisprudence very well and whatnot, but it seems that the notion with the ECJ is more active in sort of creating, not just creating law um, in the way of sort of creating precedents in the way that the Supreme Court might through its judgments, but that it actually creates um, constitutional in, in instruments, I guess, um, in, in its rulings. And it does this always through these quite small rulings on something like uh, creme du cassis or whatever, um, and which actually ends up uh, forming how the EU is run after, thereafter. So it's... Um, so yeah, I guess in that regard, it, it's it's not being it's not like the Supreme Court, which is you know tasked with upholding the Constitution and defending it and, and interpreting it. Um, the ECJ is much more active in actually creating part of the Constitution and the European Constitution in a certain way. Um, that it's judgment. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. Go on. That's a really good. No, it's a, it's a really good point that the um, the Supreme Court's ostensible political function is to interpret the the constitution and be kind of tied by it but in fact the ecj's um political function is kind of the opposite is in fact over the the heads of government to to produce a set of a set of rulings um that can only be changed by by unanimous verdict so it has a really important driving force in in the construction of the eu um and the way that it runs alex you maybe had another point so i've got a couple more on the the EC, yeah okay so yeah, you, you and, ahead, i mean and related really related to this so take that the the ruling that you you mentioned that anderson talks about it's black current liqueur it doesn't seem particularly um well historically exactly, important yeah, exactly yeah. But, but it but it is i mean and it and it's not very publicized um and if you compare that to some of the supreme court's rulings which are very heavily publicized and politicized so roe versus wade for example it's really it's like the opposite there is a there is a really important just political just difference just remind us the point about the um, blacker and liqueur why was why was it so important in the case that anderson highlights yeah so the idea was that this blacker and liqueur has to be able to be sold anywhere um in within the um within the i think that's the uh, the common market common market at that point so it does have a um a really important role in unifying standards it's quite a like i guess a we talked about the coup last time and this is the mechanism of it is basically saying legally that certain things have to be able to be sold and anywhere if they can be sold in one place so it's it's making the free movement of of goods um a, a legal duty which all yeah, national governments have to abide by. Chiseling away at the discretion of governments to um, control and regulate the kind of distribution, you can't. sale, and so on of the, certain kinds of goods and products and what have you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also just a final kind of difference between the two, there's no legislature um, which really kind of holds the ECJ to account, whereas obviously there is there is that that structure in in the united in the the u.s context so i, I mean those are all my points and those are basically well, I, things that i could say without knowing enough about jurisprudence to really get into the uh, the detail there is one thing maybe more political and kind of cultural to draw out which is that the supreme court 
of the United States sucks. I mean, it's not good. It, it has complete, you know, it it's, has a, plays a major role in the judicialization of politics, which is anti-democratic. So much of American politics is fought out via the courts and so on. Um, that's not good. And the fact that it's in the public eye is um, a, kind of a facet of this. And so that's not something to be kind of held up as a positive contrast to the ECJ, really. Um, in, in You know, you'd want your courts to be relatively quiet and not to be too involved. But I think in some no, ways... The, in, think, no, I'm just... Hang on. No, but but I think is. it's precisely the point that the ECJ, you kind of get the... the kind, I don't know if it's the worst of both worlds, but what you have is something which is very secretive, very quiet, um, but which is which has is of great impact, right? It, it actively shapes how more, Europe is. So. Yeah, it's more powerful than the Supreme Court. And at least for all of its sins... You know, we know the kind of the role that the the baleful role that the Supreme Court frequently plays in American public life, whereas the ECJ is kind of its baleful influence is far less um, understood than that. Yeah. You know, like it's um, it's much more secretive in terms of the way in which it conducts itself. Um, and I mean, imagine you know, like it's almost. I mean, the very fact that it's not widely known, just that the its origins was all fascist, essentially. I mean, that in itself, I think, is remarkable that it's managed to kind of um, become the seen as the supreme continental court of Europe of human rights, you know, kind of it will defend you against your own government. Um, and it's an outgrowth of a bunch of um, there's a bunch of renegade nerds and brown shirts. I mean, it's remarkable. Well, I mean, anyway, um, so just, just one thing from the comments, uh, T, T Vera points out yeah. that um, they, they wonder about uh, the Bader Meinhof, uh, their reactions, the kind of uh, Red Army faction reaction to um, to be all these former fascists in power, um, which I think is you know very well depicted in actually the film The Bader Meinhof Complex as well, um, and it's and it's true. I think that, you know, this the is nation, a case. But it was in the German state. It was in with the German state. Know, yeah. The, yeah. This is at the kind of super state level. Yeah. Um, and which the left, I suppose, hasn't absorbed, whereas people know about kind of how. Nazis were reabsorbed in the German state, or at least, you know, some people on the left do. The fact that it happened, they were sucked up to the European level as well is less well known. Anyway, um, let's move on, because uh, we've got, st uh, there's still quite a bit I want to get through. And the next one, and I think this is important, is to talk a bit about the ECB, the European Central Bank, and what the differences are with the Fed. And similarly, I suppose, to um, the uh, European Court of Justice, also the European Central Bank has no institutional counterweights. Um, in the sense that the Fed is part of this kind of larger system in which the, um, you know, the public and legal institutions of the U.S. state, Congress, um, the presidency, the Supreme Court all take precedence ultimately in terms of authority and legitimacy, um, whereas there is nothing like that with the ECB. It has um, power with no kind of real counterweights to it, given the fact that it's such a tremendously, um, in, you know, tremendously independent central bank. Um, and it can only be its uh, its uh, mandate can only be altered not by any parliamentary discretion, but can only be altered by treaty changes, which um, requires unanimity among all of the member states of the European Union. And the fact that it's so difficult to obviously to get unanimity among 27 member states is precisely what makes um, the institutions of the EU so inflexible and rigid. Um, and also the fact that the ECB, and this is something Anderson picks up, he's, has had such an important part in directly subverting democracy within the, um, in both in kind of limiting fiscal discretion on the part of states, but also in actively coup-mongering, in effect, within countries themselves, including, in fact, 
in one country that is especially dear to our hearts. Well, yeah. Um, here, Silvio Berlusconi was a hero, um, a true hero. Because <laughs> exactly. He resisted, he resisted Draghi's uh, impositions of uh, the use of these emergency laws um, to, you know, enforce really harsh austerity. Um, and as a consequence, was was cooed out of office, um, if you can use yeah, the words of our, Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know. We yeah. love you. We still love you, Silvio. We for, love you. For, yeah, for all, for all that he is a kind of an avatar in many ways of kind of post-politics of the person of politics and so on, he was still at the end of the day accountable to a national electorate, which made him resistant to kind of slashing people's pensions out of the, out of the blue. In a way, in a way, the Draghi wasn't and isn't um, appointed technocrat both in the bank and now leading Italy as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then to, just just to say the the ECB, um, similarly to the ECJ, another complex, secretive. Um, not secretive, but very opaque institution, which has a massive amount of um, political power at the same time as not having, um, you know, it's an obvious point, but not having a not having a democratic structure. And as we, you know, talked about in the last reading club, the the development of the European Union as a set of um, institutions is precisely um, designed to to decouple. Um, its institutions from democratic pressures so it's a yeah it's 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 obviously an important uh, and powerful institution well the other thing i wanted to say was well i was struck by talking about the academics that anderson um or the all the academics he talks through he he mentions how um despite how critical they are how they're willing in you know in their conclusions they completely or they consistently reiterate their loyalty to the eu and how they do not wish their criticisms to feed into euroscepticism um, and I was struck by that, um, and uh, this in particular by the Kevin Holloway, I think it was, a law academic at the University of Liverpool, who Manderson draws upon to make his criticisms of the role of the ECJ, and how in the end of the book he kind of wants to stress that this shouldn't be taken as criticism of the European Union project. What should we make about this, about critical academics who provide so much ammunition against these institutions um, at the same time, kind of stressing their personal loyalty and their unwillingness to be associated with the um, with the rabble and with the populist mm. challenges. Well, there's a number of different possible explanations, and I can possibly see why you're asking this question, given your you positionality. Um, positionality. Yeah. Ooh. So tell me about my positionality. No, I mean, I'll, I'll leave I'll leave leave that to you. But I, I think one is one is that the that there's essentially a bit of disingenuousness in that the these criticisms are meant truly but there's um i don't know there's a there's a, a kind of a game within the academy that has to be played um for your criticisms to be taken seriously and your work to be taken seriously you can't be too too uh euroskeptic and the second is that there's a there's a weighing up um of you know the the forces of evil need euroskepticism this has been the left's excuse for a long time um like yeah the eu is bad but look at the look at the people who are against the eu they're worse and we can't do anything because if we try to make arguments of, against the eu then we'll just be folded into and confused with all these bad right-wing people um so i mean it's it's but it is striking you're right that there's a a lot of the criticisms are quite uh i mean maybe it's also technical institutions technical criticisms the political element yeah. there is a you know is a step or two away 
Yeah, I'm sure that's right. The other thing which I thought was particularly striking, and I just wanted to briefly mention, was how open so many of the functionaries of the EU are in public about the amount of discretion they have in bending the rules, and in they, you know, they kind of they openly flaunt the way in which they take the kind of legal prescriptions and on content of the treaties as just so much kind of um, hurdles to be navigated rather than any kind of meaningful substantive um, or legal kind of limits to their discretion and power. And this was specifically the, you know, this came out and specifically with um, the innovations that Draghi came under Draghi's tenure at the ECB when they started buying up the debt of member states, something which is explicitly ruled out by EU treaties as a way of um, discouraging states from uh, borrowing in order to, uh, you know, um, debt financing. Um, and he mentions, and Anderson mentions an interview given to the Financial Times by a senior um, ECB bureaucrat in which they openly boasted about Draghi's kind of uh, skill in outflanking these treaties. And I thought that was interesting. The fact they're they're so confident that they can openly brag about the fact there is essentially no institutional or legal limit to their power, and they have no there's no consequences to them about bragging about that in a way that'd be very different in a kind of in an analogous political system such as in the U.S. Hmm. Anyway, um, let's move on because I want to talk about the kind of so after he goes through all of these different kind of um, criticisms he lays out, Anderson turns to consider some of the residual. Um, claims that are consistently that we hear kind of made for the European Union and I just want to talk through them in turn. So the first is you know after kind of criticizing the ECB and the ECJ and kind of um, the unf how unflattering the comparison even to some of the worst institutions of the US state is, um, Anderson says so what is left for the European Union and one of them is um, continental peace in the aftermath of the world wars, that it promotes human rights, that it helps to kind of realize some kind of cosmopolitan solidarity across nations, that it's fostered economic growth. So um, how do we, I mean, he offers his assessment. What do we make of his, um, how he punctures these residual claims for the legitimacy of the European Union? Yeah, I mean, there's there's um, some interesting things that I didn't I didn't know about that, that came through in this, um, in this essay. Um, just to take some of them almost at, at, at random, the the fact that there's thirty thousand lobbyists in Brussels, which is more than double the twelve thousand that are in the US. There's um, the Aquis is is ninety thousand pages. I would actually I think, was, I think you'll find it's pronounced Aki. Aki. Okay. Well, I, I I stand I stand corrected. I was too caught up with wondering like how you if you were to like have that in physical copy like how many books that would be be like the collected works but like you know that's that's a that's a lot of that's a lot of pages um yeah i mean that it's a really it's a half-hearted defense from anderson's point of view or like these here are some things that some people say but it it, it, it makes you think what his kind of um purpose in writing these three essays is or what what the the goal was because he's not you know he's clearly not digging into the the, the strongest defenses or the um the kind of like here are here are the here's the evidence and for example with the the point around growth he just presents a table of of um growth in the eurozone and it's it's very very weak and so he's just he's kind of dismisses them he's he's sort of basically i think the the point that he's making is that the arguments in favor are not particularly 
strong the arguments against are not taken up in a particularly concerted political way. So all you have left when you clear everything away is is fear of change. You know, we we have the yeah. EU now, and that's and where that's where says, we are. Yeah. The cupboard, as he says, the cupboard is pretty bare. And the most, you know, when he's kind of punctured all of these residual claims that it promotes human rights, that it promotes peace, that it promotes growth and economic convergence between the North and the South, he says, you know, all that's left in the cupboard is really two things, which is um, extended consumer choice in supermarket aisles. You know, you've got kind of uh, more kind of uh, exotic products, I guess, or exotic from within Europe anyway, um, and vis-a-vis travel. Um how important are those residual yeah. things? They seem to be very important to certain Brits, um, certainly the visa fee travel, but I'm not quite sure so that it's, not, it's enough. So I was, not, I was actually curious about this. Um, so I looked it up. I looked up, I mean, not how much, uh, you know, what you get on your supermarket shelves and that you can have, you know, Kalamata olives in, in Sweden and uh, whatever, like salted cod in, in Britain. Well, not Britain anymore because Britain's out of the EU. So you don't get any more salted cod from Portugal. Unlucky Brits um, shouldn't have done Brexit. Anyway, so <laughs> the, uh, the, <laughs> the how, many, how many Europeans, you know, citizens of the EU travel abroad like a year so i was actually curious about this because you get the sense that obviously you know it does open up all this possibility of travel not that it would be impossible without the eu but it d- definitely makes things easier and that you can take your cell phone with you and you have you know no roaming charge and so on so anyway um World so 37 percent of um eu citizens have never been abroad that's like never have been abroad to another eu member state and and by extension presumably to uh, to any other any other wow. state 37% so that's a you know fairly big fairly big chunk of of the population just, yeah. um presumably mostly in western europe um well no presumably in eastern europe like those are you know many no, people have been have trouble out. sorry They've emptied out demographically, you know, like presumably. Yeah, maybe, but not. I, I also don't think the emptying out has been to that scale. But in any case, I, so let me just go through the numbers because those who have traveled uh, at least once a year to another European country, to another EU country, is 34%. Those who've traveled less than once a year, but once, but more than once in their life, which of course could be could be kind of anything, is 29%. And those who have never traveled, as I said, is 37%. So it's kind of fairly even split you know you could probably go about 33 33 33 more or less between people who have traveled at least once a year people have traveled once in their life and people who have never traveled right so no, uh, less than we'd expect yeah that's interesting i mean no it, i think it's quite not a bit surprising quite, yeah. it's not surprising because you have that really you have that third who are traveling a lot and that's i mean that's quite frequent international travel so you do yeah. have a you do, I mean, and I would imagine that a, a, a smaller, maybe maybe a third of that is is really regular travel. So like well, once and, a week, and it or, varies, and it varies a lot by country, right? So at the low end, mm, you have yeah. Greeks. Only eight percent of Greeks uh, travel once a year or more to another EU country, and a lot wow. of Eastern Europe is very low as well. Bulgaria is very low. Italy surprisingly low, also sixteen percent. Um, the big countries, Fr- France is 33%, Germany is 52%. So, you know, as you'd expect, <laughs> lots of Germans kind of going abroad for holidays. But at the high yeah. end, at the high end, you get like the Dutch, for example, traveling 78%, uh, 78% of them travel once a year uh, abroad. So, so that's quite a lot. The, the but, you know, wealthy, that might just be, that might just be a trip over the border to Belgium. So, you know. But the wealthier countries, then judging by that, the wealthier countries also benefit from um, the visa fee travel more yeah. than the poorer countries, that much is evident. I mean, I've seen, I can't remember the numbers exactly, but I've seen comparison with the states and the biggest kind of, um, you know, if we're making comparisons with the states, as Anderson does, and the biggest difference that I recall is um, traveling to work. So whereas, you know, it'll be quite, it will be quite um, familiar 
uh, and even routine in some states to travel right across the country in order to get a job within America, within the US. Um, in Europe, it's far less common. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the things that was most vaunted about the European Union was um, allowing kind of people to take up jobs wherever the opportunity arose. But really, you know, it's more kind of the, I think it was more a kind of a middle class vision of um, academic posts all over kind of different mm. universities and large kind of conglomerates. Nothing comparable to the kind of labor mobility that you get within the U.S., so yeah just i guess a quick a quick point on the the food and and or just like supermarket shopping and travel those two things are related i think eb thompson already in the 70s or 80s was um attuned to the the idea that particularly from the british point of view europe is is holidays and food like there's a there's, there's a stomach element um to it and there's you know this is this is the the, the consumption of other cultures it's you know to a certain uh, cosmopolitan mindset it's not nothing i mean this is a part of identity and a good thing to do yeah also i really want to go on holiday i really want to you know go on international holiday yeah. so i'm I'm feeling that and, I, it's and a I'm... staycation for you george yeah no. you can't like you're a xenophobe and a, and a fascist you're not going abroad i, I want to take the opportunity In... to, to raise a question if i could uh from one of the from one of the listeners who, who oh were... from one of the listeners yeah bring yeah it yeah up. not from me um which uh, Ron uh, Ran Heilbrunn asks, uh, can you maybe say something about the reception of Anderson's piece? Did it make some kind of splash? I assume that the LRB's readership is not exactly the natural audience for this kind of criticism. Um, yeah, so it's we, a good point. And it definitely, yeah, it definitely isn't. And um, it's an interesting one. And it seems to me like it was, I mean, I don't know if George has any thoughts on this, but it seems to me, I mean, so many people, you know, a lot of academics I know who um, were fiercely hostile to Brexit and are very generally staunchly pro-EU and were pro-Remain in the context of the last few years in British politics. It was striking how they, you know, they're just putty in Anderson's um, hands and he just needs to kind of string together a few Latinate phrases in a long sentence where he talks about, I don't know, Tacitus and Klaus Soffer and Habermas and something altogether, and they believe everything he says. Um, I think it's partly kind of sheer kind of intimid the intimidating effect of erudition um, and is kind of the finesse with which he pulls it off. Um, and also, I think the fact that things have moved on. And so it came in a particular moment where they were, it allowed them kind of a particular group of um, pro-EU intellectuals in the British context, at least, to um, make their peace to some degree with what has happened in British politics. I mean, that's the way I read it, at least. Um, and that it allowed people to kind of um, arguments that they refused to accept um, from others, they were willing to accept from Anderson. And I think ultimately, you know, that speaks to the willingness of certain kinds of um, history grad students, I'm thinking of in particular, but also other kinds of academics to um, be easily coddled i suppose by a certain kind of um a certain kind of intellectual impresario if i were being kind of maximally cynical i would say that an, an essay like this coming out when it did all these three essays was designed essentially to have like the least consequential reception possible because it was like yeah these things have been decided um there's obviously there's no you know political aspect of the intervention Anderson who you might well expect having written a, a you know very good book in which is a collection of essays on on Europe previously um, could could well have, have have had something to say 
um, quite substantial during the the Brexit process, but it kind of came a bit after that. So I think it, I mean, and this, this is assuming as well that people have actually read the this essay i think that one of the purposes of the lrb is is to is to get a cheap subscription and then to um just leave it accumulating in your living room so that when people come around they can see that you uh, are very well read um and maybe read one or two things but I, this I, is a longer piece so maybe not this obviously one. it'll have impact you know it will be read in in kind of the higher echelons of um well of, of those who, who are interested in this i mean both in terms of you know policy makers uh you know Quango people, whatever, yeah, and in fact, an exchange and in fact, of letters uh, and exactly. response, and those are worth following up. I think to those reader, listeners who are interested, there is an exchange of letters from people, some of whom had been involved in governmental processes, kind of um, firing off barbs at Anderson and him responding. As but well. but but it's also it, it, so it's yeah, that's something worth reading. And it's also interesting. I think the general tone of these is a little bit like. Yes, look, we, of course we know that the EU isn't perfect, but look, you're wrong on this matter about the ECJ that in fact it's done quite well and it's done better than the US. And, you know, kind of um, correcting him on kind of factual matters or some matter of interpretation or, or uh, you know, comparative analysis with regard to the US to say, look, it's not that bad and it's actually fared reasonably well. And, you know, it just seems so insubstantial because the it, it doesn't respond to the fundamental points Anderson makes. If we're being critical of Anderson, though, like Anderson kind of hides his light under a bushel. You know, he doesn't come out swinging. It's always kind of oblique references and saying, well, it doesn't doesn't seem very good, does it? But it's never said in his own voice. So, you know, he, he obviously, it's his style of writing. You know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't really, I don't know if you want to say he pulls punches, but he doesn't throw punches directly, right? Um, he lets kind of other people to to throw those punches for him um, in his writing. Um, I, I wanted to bring yeah, in a, 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 a question which is relevant to this from uh, from a listener. Um, didn't Anderson, which is very much to the point, uh, from Tivira again, didn't Anderson overlook some pluses, such as the tendency of the EU to push human rights forward? Think abortion, for example, uh, though never uh, anything that would, of course, hurt capitalism. I think sorry we had a, we had an interruption say, there I went offline um something my, you were just about to say what the plus is if the we EU were yeah, and then it's well, just quiet the line uh, I, I don't, mean, don't know what to make of that pluses, to be fair so you know maybe we should um are you there Alex yeah I'm here I'm okay. listening um uh well and then maybe focus on some take that question and also maybe any other listener questions so I suppose um the thing that kind of um, la that stayed with me was um, he talks a bit about the German critical theorist Klaus Offer in the piece, and Klaus Offer makes the point that the eurozone, you know, it was always about to try and um, unify economies that are structured so differently, particularly the economies of the southern tier, Spain, Italy, and Greece, with the economies of the northern tier, the Benelux countries, Germany, Denmark, and so on, and France, and so, um, however. He says, you know, there was a bad idea. Um, it would be worse to dismantle it. And so Europe is stuck. Um, it can't move forward because um, economic convergence isn't going to happen between countries that are structured so differently. And at the same time, the consequences would be so un unthinkable of dismantling the Eurozone that it's stuck in the middle. What do we make of that, this um, impasse? Well, it's even a bit more... Space? It's a bit kind of more cynical and and mealy mouth than than that. At least what Offer says, which is basically that you know Germany benefits. It's fine. So uh, not for me, a German theorist, to to encourage people to do anything about it because you know you know I'm all right, Jack, or, or certainly the the German 
um, importing, uh, exporting, export capital is is doing pretty is doing pretty well. But I mean, this is I guess it gets it you know t- it gets to to the point though the way that you framed it, Phil, which is the the left or people who are against the EU have to be make a case for rupture and this is what happened almost in in this the with the left wing of Syriza but but it didn't it didn't get that I mean and this is it, it it's a it's of into a different situation is going to be a, a politically disruptive process um but you know that's well, that's, that's the argument that needs to be made yeah, yeah. I mean but pff, you've got to not be afraid of of, of some rupture that's important. Take us, Alex. Tell us some of the questions um, we've got from our listeners. Yeah, so I mean, just a couple here. Um, there's a question about accountability from William Rowe and, and a sort of discussion in, in the in the live stream discussion comments section. I don't know what you call that thing. Anyway, in the chat, that's the thing I'm looking for. Um, that, you know, so William Rowe asks, surely accountability is a central moral virtue for technocratic liberals. Um, so that it seems that the unaccountability of the ECJ should be more widely known. Um, uh, Tivira responds that actually there's a, that in some podcast, well, we, we actually said we will never mention any the existence of any other podcast on this podcast, um, but I'll make an exception here that, because I don't think this one's in competition with us. It's called Maastricht Law Talk Pod, um, where lawyers discuss EU no. law and the ECJ. Yeah, you can not, often hear their disdain. Not. Yeah, you can often hear their disdain for democracy. Um, Luke van Middelaar, uh, put, as Luke van Middelaar puts it, mere aesthetics. Um, yeah. So, yeah. but. No, it doesn't sound like a competitor point to me. No, fair. as to accountability, it's, accountability seems to be the central moral virtue for technocratic liberals. That's true, but I don't think it is. I mean, what do they mean by accountability exactly? Um, well, you can have uh, you can have accountability as a central moral virtue without it being a political um, virtue. Reality, so you can talk about yeah. it as much as possible. But if and that's if accountability is framed as an individual thing rather than as a as responsiveness to democratic. Um, pressures and it, it's yeah. you, know, you don't need to, you don't need to be responsive to the demos. You can be responsive to other things. You can be accountable can be, to the constitution, to for your example. Own conscience. Well, yeah, but or, it's or also the, I think yeah. about delivering output as well. You know, kind of um, what's called output legitimacy. I think in the political science jargon is you know as long as you deliver things like um, I don't know the ability to drink kind of blackcurrant liqueur anywhere in Europe and free roaming charges or whatever, then. The way in which decisions are made and how much kind of um, popular input there is into the process through which these decisions are made, you know, that kind of accountability is perhaps less important. It's the accountability of the manager, right? Who is accountable for for this process or for getting yeah, this done? He's given targets. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's like um, I want to be accountable for for driving this forward and for achieving for delivering at pace and achieving achieving change, rather than like these people will vote and tell me what to do don't think so that sounds a bit shit so (laughs) it sounds like you're quite familiar with this kind of discourse and um language george it's possible i know i can i can put myself in other people's positions imaginatively i mean that 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 helps um but that's a good question alex do you have some more more good Um, questions well, no, I mean, I just wanted to... Uh, You're accountable. You're accountable for, I, I, for generating yeah, these questions. Yeah, Nick is accountable. Before any other questions, I mean, I wanted to to bring up the fact that with regard to account, because that it's accountability is one, but the rule of law, and this is something that Perry Anderson says in the thing, is kind of possibly the most 
um, repeated kind of self-justifying slogan or insistence from Eurocrats and so on that that the rule of law must be obeyed, that the, that the, the EU is all about the rule of law, and it's this um, obsessive sort of legalism. But at the same time, as Phil has already said, um, there's this recognition or, you know, yeah, and recognition and public um, admittance of the fact that when they need to, they'll find a way, they'll find a way around, right? So that the France and Germany can create some um, sort of treaty, um, you know, or some, yeah, some sort of treaty outside the EU to push through what they need to, to create the sort of legal framework that's necessary. The ECB likewise kind of makes things go off the hoof. And, and as uh, Perry Anderson notes, it's the one institution which of the EU, which really seems to have more freedom for maneuver, more ability to take determined executive decisions about things um, and just get them done. Whereas a lot of the EU, rest of the EU is... Um, is, is just tangled up in, in um, yeah, in a lot of kind of bureaucracy, which I think seems to not really sat- satisfy many people other than the EU, like pe- kind of the few people kind of invested in the EU, um, maybe even not even um, like in line with what it actually is, um, kind of they, they believe in this, in this sort of, uh, you know, this kind of sacralized idea of the EU. Um, and then Did kind you, of bureaucrats. Were you, were you a strong believer back when you were at the LSE, Alex? I was actually. I mean, probably by that point, at that point, I still was. I mean, I maybe didn't care too much about it, and I kind of believed in the sort of idea of a of a European, of a continental wide uh, political federation, um, which got beyond the kind of old uh, old nations, which themselves are fake and constructed. Which you know, they. I mean, they are obviously they're artifacts of of history, and so you know, you could get beyond being German or French or whatever, and uh, and and be European and have a kind of genuinely European demos, a federal federal democratic Europe, and so on. Yeah, I believed in that, um, but obviously, you know, that that I belief can still was still hear the faded was, passion in your voice. Well, no, absolutely, but it was obviously a, a view held complete in complete contradistinction to the reality of what the EU was, which I couldn't be bothered as a lazy student to actually study what it actually was about because it's boring and long mm. and complicated and all these names: Euro- Council of Europe, European Commission. What's the difference, etc. You know, as as any student student of Europe will you know discovers that uh, yeah. That it's almost deliberately, so deliberately people opaque. People are genuinely excited by it. Some people really get off on all of that weirdness. But yeah, what about but you, there George? Is, there were is you, some, were, there you is to, were you a believer? I was. Yeah, I think I. I think I was. I looked. I looked to the to the continent when I when I was a youngster and thought, look at the incredible food. Um, you know, used to watch Italian football and think, oh, that that is the, you know, that is the 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 real place with culture and 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 passion and not this not this terrible i'm I'm not i'm being i'm being serious um but no i think it's a there is something to be explained how the idea of europe generates um a lot of spontaneous support amongst amongst young people um and or it it seems to have done but just a point on accountability to bring it back to that that question i've just just kind of come to my mind that the like what there is a there is a reason why accountability has a particular meaning in the eu context and that is because and not to get too much into into member state theory but there is the accountability in a in a nation state is 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 horizontal is vertical in the sense that you have representatives accountable to to people who vote to them vote for them um but then in the process of eu integration as chris bickton's book outlines you have that as a as a horizontal accountability or horizontal legitimacy i.e 
the rulers or the representatives of each country interact with representatives from other countries and that's where you get the accountability it's an elite level accountability rather than a um a vertical democratic one so you can sort of see how they can talk about accountability and believe it because that's their material situation that's that's what what that's the the waters that they that they they swim in so i just think it ends up having a different meaning to to what we yeah. might we yeah might i think i think i think that's absolutely right um in yeah in the way that you've put that george uh so just to round this out um a, a couple of last things from uh from our listeners um that uh well one that uh you know that someone likes my theory that uh, of judging uh politics by uh by the quality of their cuisine um which maybe we've made a, a small inroads uh into that and, and we should we should go further um talk about uh, i will defend know, i will defend british cuisine mm. i will defend british but it's cuisine only it's bit. only improved because um lots of foreigners have gone and, and made it improve so you know otherwise True. if britain had been stuck on its fascist little rainy island it would have uh, been stuck in <laughs> Stuck in the 1960s, mushy peas. So there you go. Um, but 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 some other some other things from the listeners. Uh, we've had calls for to get uh, Luke van Middelaar on, uh, which I think is probably less likely. Uh, Kostas Lapavitsas, One of the listeners says they've read his book, The Left Case Against the EU, which is very good. And I think we discussed that at a reading club. Uh, and um, these guys, I mean George and Phil, who are part of the full Brexit, uh, have done a, done events with uh, with Lapavitsas. Um, what you should go check that out actually um, and of course well actually one person which we will have on in the future who is actually mentioned in this essay is Christopher Bickerton who uh, Perry Anderson speaks uh, you know very positively about about his interpretation of the EU and specifically his development of member state theory but we will probably have uh, Chris on at some point in the future specifically to discuss his book uh, which he's doing a, a history of Europe since 1989 which actually um, sounds a bit spicier than a book called European Integration. Um, so we'll look forward to doing that. Um, but I think uh, I think we can probably leave that here. We, we, we've been going an hour. Um, so thanks uh, for the for the listeners who've tuned in, uh, who are following us yeah, uh, on, on YouTube. Um, subscribe to us on YouTube uh, if you don't already. Um, we don't, we, we just put out the regular episodes there as sort of videos, but it's, you know, just audio. Um, but it'd be good to get the, the numbers up just because, you know, who knows, uh, maybe we'll do something uh, on YouTube at some point. Um, and of course, uh, for for uh, you listener who are listening to this as a, as a podcast rather than as a live stream, um, come along for the next one. If you can make it, uh, let us know, you know, and if, and if you also feel that, well, the timing that we do this is completely wrong, could you please try to do it at a different time? Uh, let us know and, and we'll see what we can uh, work out across uh, various different time zones. Um, but that's it for now. We're going to be back again in around a month with another one of these on the third part of this, uh, more Perry Anderson. Um, but of course, again, he covers sort of different ground in, in each one. Um, so we'll be back uh, with more and feel free to submit your criticisms, comments about this one and of course, if you have already questions for the next one, feel free to submit them uh, in, through the usual channels. That's it for from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.